Thank you, Amy. Uh, and Amy didn't tell you, this isn't going to be one of those boring church dances, you know, where you go and all they do is play, I don't know, some boring Christian song that was played out, you know, 20 years ago. Um, we're going to have some hip hop and, uh, you know, some other things. And if you're a country person, because I know some of you are, um, we'll have a little Garth for those of you that want to hear that. Or is Garth even alive still? I don't. <laughs> I talked to the guy who's the DJ, and he said that he's going to uh, allow me to pick a few songs. So I'll be back in the 80s myself, but uh, they'll make it real for you. Okay. Also, the reveal survey that Amy talked about, actually, you can do it right online. You can do it from your house. And we'll explain that uh, next week. And we really want to encourage you uh, to do that. That will help us out a lot as we uh, go forward. Well, I'd like to begin this morning by saying this. You guys are strange. You're strange. And let me tell you why. You sing songs in the air that may never leave this building. You got up earlier this morning than you needed to. And you trudged through snow rather than sleeping in. And you give your money away instead of keeping it all for yourself. What a weird group you are. So weird that someone wrote you a note this week, and I thought I'd read it uh, for you. This is from the principal of uh, Southview Elementary School, and this is what he says. Dear Jar Community Church, we would like to express our appreciation for your generous support of our Christmas help program. As you may be aware, over 85% of our families receive free and reduced breakfast and lunch. We feel very lucky to have been given the opportunity to partner with you so that we could make a happier Christmas for many of our students. With your support, we're able to provide food and gifts for 19 families and 52 students. Thanks so much for your help, and we look forward to working with you in the future. You're weird. Why would you do that? Well, you're going to have another opportunity next week to be weird as well. We are going to have a Valentine's dinner for the Muncie Mission, the homeless shelter, and we're asking all of you to bring a bag of Hershey Kisses. Not one kiss, not an open bag where you ate half of it, okay? A whole bag or any other assorted candy that you have. And bring it, and it's going to be the centerpiece for this dinner. And you can participate in that dinner as well. But we really want to encourage you to do that. You know, I was thinking about it this week, that the, the word that God calls us to be is the word holy. And that big word holy simply means to be different or unique. In fact, I think I could find a way that it could be translated weird. So the Bible could say, be weird as God is weird. Be different as God is different. Be unique as God is unique. 
And in our holiness, in our differentness, that makes us attracted to people who are like, I'm tired of the normal, mundane things of life. I want my life to count for something more. And that's why I'm so excited to be the pastor of what I think is the weirdest church in Delaware County. Because we're constantly giving ourselves away to other folks. And we have people who walk in here homeless and we, peop- we have people who are making six figures and they're doing life together. Now part of this weirdness also is something that we're doing this year called Align in 09. We want everyone to align their lives, their families, and the church in a closer way with Jesus Christ. And we think as we do that, we'll help align the community as well. And what will come up on the board is kind of four challenges that we're encouraging everyone to participate in, and I'd like us to read them together. Here's the first one. Let's read it together. Spend time... That means all of us, okay? One more time. Spend time with God. Set aside ten minutes a day to talk to God through prayer and reading the Bible. Here's the next one. Guys, just bring them up. Keep bringing them. Share in community. Regularly attend Sunday celebrations. Be a part of a small group with ten other people. Okay? Serve the church. Find a way that you can use your talents to serve in the church. Okay, user, you saw it. All right. Last one, okay? Seek out. Pray for two people who are not connected with Christ or the church. Good job. That's what we want to do. That's what we want to become. And the first two weeks, we have talked about how you can work at that first kind of goal. We talked in the first week about prayer, and the second week we talked about the Bible. And today, what I want to talk about is honesty and how you can get real. Let's take a look at this clip. Driving to San Diego, and you notice something big up ahead of you. They're called mountains. Mountains can be very dangerous to drive through. The hilly and curvy roads often make it impossible to see what's coming up in front of you. As a result, you, the driver, must go slower and drive with caution. This road is very similar to relationships. A relationship can be very rocky if there are too many mountains in between you and another person. But... If your relationship is open and honest, then there aren't a lot of things that get in the way and things are more clear. So let's take a look today at honesty within our relationships. You'll never know how much time we go through just for you on those videos, okay? Honesty. Honesty? How do you become honest with God, with yourself, and with other people? Now, when I say honesty, I'm not talking about George Washington type of myth-fable honesty. Anyone remember what the story was about George Washington when he was only about six years old? Chopped down a cherry tree. You know what? It's a lie. You know why? This year, they did research at his childhood home. Uh, and they did archaeological digs, all kinds of stuff. And what they found is that there's never been a cherry tree in that yard. And so what I'm talking about today is not some myth or fable or a hope of honesty, 
But what I'm talking about is a deep-rooted honesty with God. The ability to be real with God and to look in the mirror and really see it. Because even though you can fool some of the people all of the time, and all of the people some of the time, you can't ever fool God any of the time. God's eyes are always on you. He's constantly looking at you, thinking about you. Now, He doesn't do this to freak you out, okay? But He does it because He wants you to know how much He loves you, how much He cares for you, how much He is thinking about you. You see, God loves you just the way you are. Just the way you are. God loves you. But He loves you too much for you to stay that way. So God is constantly desiring for you to be honest with Him and with yourself. If you would, I'd like you to look at the screen again. Uh, we're going to read a scripture together. Today's kind of read the screen day, okay? And uh, we're going to read a scripture together so it'll come up. And let's uh, read it together. We'll do it twice. Twice. Once. Okay, we won't do that. Just repeat. No, that's not it. But that's a good try. We're experiencing technical difficulties for those of you who will... uh, Listen to this. Let's just read this passage together. You can read it after me, okay? Speak the truth in your heart. Let's read it together. Speak the truth in your heart. Speak the truth in your heart. Now, some of you might be wondering, why would anyone lie to himself or herself? I mean, why would they do that? I mean, I can understand why you would lie, you know, to someone else in a certain set of circumstances. But why would anyone ever lie to themselves? But folks, people do. In fact, look at the person beside you for a second, okay? Look at them. That person has lied to themselves. They have. And the person that's sitting in your seat has lied to themselves as well. People lie to themselves all the time. So the question becomes, how can you be honest with yourself? How can you not lie to yourself, but be real? How can you kind of take the mask off that we often tend to put on and just be yourself? Well, the answer is this. You have to get honest with God. You have to get real with God. You see, there are kind of two key relationships in life that you have to have. And the first one is this, God and you. And if you want, you can do this in your program. We have a space on the back. You can uh, do this uh, together. So there's God and there's you. This is called the vertical relationship kind of the cross. It's God and it's you. The Bible says this, The Word, God's Son, Jesus Christ, became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. We saw the glory with our own eyes, the one-of-a-kind glory, like Father, like Son, generous inside and out, true from start to finish. 
You see, this is the relationship between God and you. And it always starts with God first. It doesn't start with you. It starts with God. This scripture verse just told us, God came to us. He looked up at the messed up world that we were experiencing, and He sent His very own Son to be flesh here on earth. You see, Jesus, the Word, God's one and only Son, came to earth and He moved into the human neighborhood. I like that. He moved into our neighborhood. He came to our turf. And for millenniums and millenniums, people tried to make the neighborhood of earth, the neighborhood of their heart, right with God. But no matter how hard they tried, no matter how many things they did, no matter how many, you know, kind of religious acts that they performed, they never could get into a relationship with God. The neighborhood just stayed messed up. But when Jesus came, He kind of bridged this gap so that we could be connected with God. And in the midst of that, it wasn't us going up to God, but it was actually God coming down to our neighborhood. And yet I want you to know, folks, this isn't a one-way street anymore. God really wants you and I to have a relationship with Him. That it's a two-way street, and He's longing for us to communicate and connect with Him, to be honest with Him. God says this, You will seek Me and you will find Me when you seek Me with all of your heart. And the Bible says this, Draw near to God and He will draw near to you. It's a two-way street. God says here, I come down, I'm ready for you, but will you draw near to Me? Will there be a relationship between the two of us? And this is what an honest relationship looks like between you and God. It's a connected relationship. Now, the past two weeks, we talked about this vertical dimension of God and you. And we talked about how it's important to have an honest relationship with Him. In fact, we talked about two tools that you can use to help this relationship between God and you. Two tools. The first week, we talked about the tool of what? Do we need to start over again? Prayer. Okay? The first week, we talked about prayer. And last week, we talked about a second tool, and that tool was what? The Bible. Good. You were here last week. All right. Now, the problem with both prayer and the Bible is that they can simply become religious activities. Things that we do to kind of check off our list. So we come and we go, okay, I prayed today. Check. I read the Bible today. Check. I went to church and dozed off. Let's be honest, okay? Check, check. And we think that we have this check-off list kind of taken care of. But Jesus was not just about a check-off list. And it was not about a message of just doing religious activities. It's not about rules and rituals, but it's about having a relationship with the one who loves you most and knows you best. You know, personally, I think that there are some assumptions about the Christian faith that are in our culture that really can kind of mess people up if we're not careful. 
There are things in our faith that can cause us trouble, especially for people who are just connecting with God or reconnecting with God maybe for the first time in a while. And I think the biggest one is simply this relationship between God and you, this relationship that Jesus calls us to have. I think sometimes we think Jesus is just about asking us to be religious goody-two-shoes. You know, just be the good, smiling Christian. And if you're big and smiling, then you're good. And when I was growing up as a kid, the way you were a good, smiling Christian was you didn't drink, you didn't chew, and you didn't do it with girls that do. (laughs) And you check that off. And if you did that, you know what I mean? You were good. You were a good Christian boy if you did that. I mean, you just check off the list. But I'm telling you folks, it's so much deeper than a check-off list. Do any of you remember what Jesus called His first followers? Anyone remember? Take a guess. There's only 200 people. You might be wrong. Disciples. Good. Disciples. And the root word for the English word disciples is the word discipline. Now, that doesn't sound like very much fun at all, does it? I mean, some of you have been here since the new year has began, and you're thinking to yourself, man, I love this church. I love the music. I love the little kooky videos, you know. I even love the PowerPoint guys who haven't got it together today, you know. And um, But now I'm thinking, discipline. Okay, here it goes. I knew week three, you know, that was it. Quit sinning. Quit being lustful. Quit messing up. You need to be disciplined. You know, for several years, I volunteered as a basketball coach at the YMCA. Not the one here, but on the north side. And uh, I had a group of kids that, uh, you know, I coached and I enjoyed it. And there will be a picture, maybe. Ah, good. This is this was one of the teams I coached. Now, the kid who is circled was my next door neighbor, and his name is Casey. Now, Casey is a very good little basketball player. He shoots the ball well. He rebounds well. Um, he plays defensive well, and he was one of the biggest kids that was on the team. But he was also one of the slowest ever. I mean, Casey just didn't like to run. He just didn't see the point of running. Just like many of us, you know, don't see the point of running. But in order to get in shape for the games, I would have the kids start at one end of the basketball court, and I'd have them run all the way down and then back. And you know, when I would blow the whistle, there were always those two overachiever kids that sprinted all the way down and sprinted all the way back. And then there were, you know, the rest of the group, for the most part, they would sprint down and they kind of jogged back. But Casey and another boy, they did what I call the run-walk. They look like they're running. And they look so tired. But the fact is, they were just like fitness walking down and back. You know what I mean? They weren't moving that much at all. And... uh, One particular time after practice, I just kind of pulled Casey aside and I told him, I said, 
Casey, you know, you shoot the ball really well. You rebound well. You play defense well. But when we do the running drills, why don't you ever run? And he looked at me and he said this. He said, running makes me really tired. And it makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, the reason why many of us don't run, it makes us tired. It makes us sweat. It makes us perspire. It makes muscles in our body ache that didn't ache when we were teenagers, you know? It makes the muscle in your chest hurt, called your heart. But I knew I had to give a speech regardless of how hypocritical it was. And so I went back to Casey as he said, you know, because running really makes me tired. And I told him this. I said, well, Casey, I understand. But you know what? You need to be disciplined. Disciplined. And then I said this. And you know what? If you run in practice, you're going to run so much faster during the game. I don't know if that's true. It probably isn't true. But it was the best thing that I could say at that point. And my point was this. If you practice hard, you'll play harder during the game. And part of the practice is you have to try really hard. I mean, Casey, you shoot the ball well and you work hard at that. You work hard at rebounding. You work hard at defense. But when it comes to something you don't like to do, like running, you just don't do it. And I'll never forget, as all these words were coming out of my mouth, I thought to myself, how many things in my life are undisciplined? You know, how many things in my life do I not want to do or I don't try to do because I get tired of doing it? But I had to push all that aside, you know, during that time because I was a coach. You know, I think many of us as disciples, as disciplined ones of Jesus, we really shouldn't have to do anything that hurts. That's what we think. We shouldn't have to do anything that hurts. We really should figure out a way to do this kind of Christianity kind of thing without having to cause any sacrifice to ourselves. I mean, there has to be a way for ourselves in which we can just shoot the ball all the time and we don't have to do other things. But Jesus calls us to create some time and space in our lives so that we might be His disciples. You know, we're uh, doing this journey through uh, the Gospels and Acts throughout this whole year. And some of you have been getting this online. If you haven't, you can look at the connections table. But each day, Monday through Friday, we give a Scripture verse and then a devotion to kind of keep us connected from Sunday to Sunday. And this past week, if you read that, you'll remember that at the very beginning of Mark, uh, in verse 17, Jesus is walking down a beach and all of a sudden he notices two guys. One guy is named Simon, Peter, and the other one is Andrew, their brothers. And they're both fishing and they have their nets out in the water and they're fishing. And Jesus comes up to them and he says this. He says, come, be my disciples, and I will show you how to fish for people. And the Scripture tells us they disciplined themselves, they left their nets, and they walked to go and follow Him. Now, Jesus may not ask you to leave your job. 
He may not ask you to sell your house. He may not ask you to cash your 401k. But he will ask you to create some space and time for him and you. He wants this relationship. And a very great first step of being able to do that is the step of baptism. And on January 29th, we're going to have a class at my house. And uh, anyone who's interested in saying, you know, I'm ready to follow this disciple kind of way, you can come and be a part of it. And then on February 8th, we'll have a baptism here uh, in the swimming pool here at the Y. And I just want you to know, people freak out about baptism because they think this is what it's about. i got to get all my life together. i got to get everything together. i got to have my checklist all taken off, and then I'll think about being baptized. And baptism is not the end point, folks. It's the beginning point. It's where you say, you know what? I want to have more of a disciplined life. I want Jesus to be a part of my life. And that's the way it goes. And if you want to be a part of that, you can sign up at the Connections table today. Now, for the first two weeks and for the first half of the teaching today, we have talked about this vertical relationship, God and you. And if you don't have that relationship, it's hard to go too much further. And you might say that this relationship here is the vertical part of the cross. And the whole Christian faith is about this individual relationship between you and God, God and you. That's what it's about. But that's not enough. And so we want to talk about the second important relationship in life. And it's the relationship between you and others. So there's God and you, and then there's you and others. Now, this horizontal bar we're going to talk about, but it doesn't like replace the other one. It just enhances it. And it's still about God and you, but now God says, I want you to be in community, in relationship with other people. He says, I want you to be with somebody else that you can be totally honest with, that you can share your life with. And so, my prayer this week is that you guys will think about one person that you can be totally honest and open with. This week. And maybe you don't find them this week, but you start praying. God, who is that person that I could do this with? Some other Christian. Some other person of faith. And if you promise to do that, we'll just leave right now and go to Puerto Vallarta. Okay? But folks, this horizontal relationship between you and others is so important. It's important for you to be a part of that. And next week, we're going to talk about something that is a part of this others, which is small groups. That's what we're going to talk about next week. Today we're going to talk about one individual person. But you and others, small groups. And then the last two weeks, we're going to talk about what we do outside of that, which is called outreach. How do we reach out to other people? How do we give ourselves away for the cause of Christ? Now, the key to this relationship between God and you is this word. Intimacy. Intimacy 
between you and God is what's important. That's what that vertical relationship is all about. It's about intimacy between you and God. And this horizontal one is about community. It's about community between you and other people. That's what this whole thing is about. So there's God and you, there's you and others. There's intimacy between you and God, and there's community between you and other people. And in particular, this week, we're going to talk about one person. Now, the problem is, is that for many people, they just stay stuck here of you and other people. They get with their little Christian friends, and they get in a holy huddle together. And they start doing things and going places, but they never really have an intimate relationship with God. They're just doing church. But I believe, with every fiber in my being, that if you don't have intimacy with God first, you'll never have intimacy with other people. If you don't understand the love that God has for you, how unconditional, unwavering, undeserving, un, uh, you know, I don't know what another unword is. I just lost it. So, it's good stuff, unconditional. If you don't understand that first, you'll never be able to love other people because people sometimes are harder to love than God. They're difficult. And the only way you can love other people is when you receive God's love and you're willing to give it back to Him as well. But it all begins, folks, with whether or not God is going to be the top spot in your life. You know, my first job out of college was uh, working at the American Playground Factory in Anderson, Indiana. And uh, it was kind of a job where they felt bad that I didn't have a job yet from my college degree. So they said, here, we're going to let you work for us. It was a friend of mine. His dad owned the company. And uh, they put me in a very important department, the crating department. Now, to be honest, that's pretty scary if you know me very well. I can't do anything mechanical. I'm not a carpenter. I thought for a long time they did this joke on me, go find the left-handed hammer. I really thought there was a left-handed hammer. I looked around for a week for a left-handed hammer, okay? Now, my boss in the crating department was named Elmer. We called him Elmo. But he wasn't red and cuddly and cute. He was tall kind of had a mean look to him, built really strong, and was intimidating. And so whatever Elmo said, Chris did. But there was also someone over Elmo, the uh, foreman of the place, and uh, he was kind of a short, fat, roly-poly kind of guy, looked kind of like one of the seven dwarfs, to be honest. And uh, his name was Victor, and we called him Victo. And once a week... Victor would come into the crating department and he would say, you're doing it all wrong. And he'd start cussing us out, throwing hammers, all kinds of stuff. And it would just be like, who am I supposed to follow now? Elmo or Victor? 
So each week I wasn't sure who my boss was going to be. But you know what? I learned a very valuable lesson in that job, and it's this. You can only have one boss if you're going to be productive. You can only have one boss. Jesus put it this way. No one can serve two masters. Folks, you can only have one master. You really can. And our journey into being a disciple is making Jesus our one master. Because if He is not your master, you will never understand this vertical relationship of intimacy with God and you'll never be able to give yourself away to other people. Now there was a guy in the Old Testament who had perfected this. He had perfected kind of this intimacy with God. In fact, he wrote tons of chapters in the Bible about how you want to have intimacy with God. He wrote pretty much one whole book, the largest book in the Bible, Psalms. And the Bible says this about him, that the Lord sought out a man after his own heart. He was a man after his own heart. Anybody know who this guy was? His name was David. And David was a man after God's own heart. And he had this vertical dimension down. He and God were there and they were connected constantly. He was a man after God's own heart. But you know what David also was? He was an adulterer, a murderer, and a liar. You see, there was a fatal flaw in David's life. And the fatal flaw was he didn't have the horizontal bar. It was him and God and nobody else. And he didn't have people around him that would kind of help guide him whenever he'd get off target. And it appears that that was the flaw of his life. Now David was a little shepherd boy who eventually grew up to be the king of Israel. He was the most powerful and the most wealthiest man in all of earth. He was like Bill Gates or the Sultan of Saudi Arabia. You know, he could just do whatever he wanted because he had every wealth and power that there was. And one day, he sent his troops out to war, but rather than David going, he stayed back in the uh, temple palace in the capital city of Jerusalem. And what happened next is what I think is one of the greatest sins that people fall into in life. And it's this, David got bored. Boredom set in. Boredom. Anybody uh, read this article this week? Hopefully it comes up. There we go. Anybody read this this week? Down in the left corner it says, Police say bored men plan to bomb homeless man's tent. It seems that three guys from Newcastle got bored. And in their boredom, they made two homemade bombs and they had plans to put it right into, uh, throw it into a tent of a homeless man. Folks, boredom can be a dangerous place to be. It really can. And some of you are saying, well, I would never do that. I'd never make a bomb and put it in a homeless guy's tent. And that's true. I'm sure you wouldn't. But how many times has boredom hit your life in which just in your own thinking, in your own thoughts, you've had things like this. I wonder what I could get away with today. I wonder if I flirted with this other person at work, even though I'm married, I wonder if I flirted with them enough, maybe, just maybe, something would happen. 
I wonder if I took this item from the workplace, if they'd ever miss it at all. I mean, I know I'm a good person, but if I wasn't, I wonder what I would do in this situation. And the reality is, folks, we all, all, all think about that at different times. And it's not that hard to find a list like that, is it? I'm telling you, boredom is a dangerous thing. And it can take you someplace where you never thought you would go. I guarantee that these three guys didn't think, oh, I'm going to have a felony charge in just a few moments and eventually I may go to jail. I bet that wasn't in their heads. And that's why the Bible says this, a heart that turns from God becomes bored with its own ways. But a good person is satisfied with God's ways. So the question becomes, which way will you choose? Well, one day David is on his temple palace. Everyone else is out to war. And he's there, and he looks down on another building. And he sees a woman there bathing, and she's naked, and her name was Bathsheba. And she was very beautiful, the Scripture tells us. And if David would have had this type of relationship between him and at least one other person, he could have gone to a friend and said, you know what, I just saw this naked woman, and you know what, I don't want to mess my life up, so will you help me not to do that? Instead, he calls his servants over and he tells them this. He says, could you go find out about this girl Bathsheba? Just tell her my story. And so the servant goes and he finds out some information about her and he comes back with the information. He says, you know, King, I can't believe you don't know who she is. She's the friend of one of your best friends. His name's Uriah. And he's off to war right now and he's on the front line." And while he's at war, you're looking at his naked wife. So David tells the servant, well, okay, I understand. Well, why don't you go get her and bring her to the palace? I want to comfort her. And at that moment, you're thinking, creepy David, right? It'd be like some guy who's in Iraq right now and the same situation happens. You'd think, man, that guy's a creep. I mean, David doesn't get it. He's opening the door to destruction in his life. And you and I, as readers, if we read this story, we'd be like, David, don't go there. Don't do that. But that's exactly what he does. He goes there. He commits adultery. He gets what he wants. One of his best friends is on the front line in the battle. And He's on the front line cheating. While he's on the front line, David's cheating. And then sometime later, Bathsheba comes back with word and says she's pregnant. Now at this point, David again could go to somebody, somebody else, and say, you know what, man, I got her pregnant. It's horrible. What, what am I supposed to do? I messed up. I screwed up. Help me. But he doesn't do that. He begins to shut down and he lives in a world of darkness. And he starts thinking about, you know, I've royally screwed up. And you know what most of us do when we think we've royally screwed up? Try to cover it up, right? You try to cover it up. So, he sends for Uriah, his good friend, who he's just slept with his wife. 
And he brings him into the palace. He's like, oh, you're right, man. I missed you so much. I'm so glad you're here. Come on in. Tell me about the war. What's been going on? And so Uriah starts telling him about everything in the war. And David's like, man, I'm not, I don't really care because my plan is I just want you to go home and sleep with your wife. Because, you know, you and I have the same color of eyes. And so just go and you do that. And so he says, go do that. Uriah, why don't you just go sleep with your wife? And Uriah's like, all right, I'll go ahead and do that. And he gets out of the palace and he starts walking down the stairs and his conscience hits him. Unlike David's. That never hit him. And he says, I can't do that. All my friends, all my buddies, they're on the front line right now, sacrificing their life. Why would I go and do something that I know that they're not able to? I'm just going to sleep here. And he falls asleep on the stairs. And David gets up the next morning. He's like, man, my plan worked. And he walks down the stairs and he sees him down at the end of the stairs. He's like, Uriah, what are you doing here? And he said, King David, all of our men are out there. I couldn't go and do something like that. I'm thinking about them. And so David goes, well, that didn't work, so I guess I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to get him drunk. So he gets a whole bunch of food. He gets him whacked out. You know, they're lit up, the two of them. You know, fraternity parties where you're telling stories, and that's the way this is going. And David kind of looks at him, and he said, some of you are going right now, that's in the Bible? That's why you need to read it. Best soap opera. And both of them are lit up and they're drinking. And all of a sudden, David's like, Yo, right, man, I love you, man. You know, like, I think the, well, dude, you need to go sleep with your wife. You go, you sleep with her. And Uriah leaves the palace. He's kind of stumbling around. And he walks down the stairs. And all of a sudden it hits him again. As much as he was drunk, he thought, I can't do that. I can't leave and do something that other guys on the front line would never be able to have that opportunity. And David's like, man, my plan worked. And he walks down the stairs and eventually he sees Uriah again. He's like, Uriah, what are you doing? And so finally David stoops to the lowest moment. He takes out a piece of paper and he writes to the commander-in-chief, Joab. And he says, you know what? This is the order. Put Uriah out in front of the fighting when it's the fiercest. And then everyone else withdraw." And let him die. David seals it with the king's seal. He gives the death certificate to Uriah himself. And he goes out and Uriah is killed in battle. David just went Hitler on us, folks. The man who knew that he was a man after God's own heart is now this evil man. And this has all happened because he just never found somebody that he could come clean with. Then David does the noble thing, according to the culture at that time. He brings Bathsheba into his palace and he says, Okay, Bathsheba, we're going to get married. And everyone in the entire kingdom's going, Oh, David is such a good man. See the widow he's brought now in. And they have a baby. And they say, Oh, he's so blessed by God. He's so honorable. But David and Bathsheba know the truth. 
And God knows the truth. So God sends for a prophet. A person who speaks on his behalf. A guy by the name of Nathan. And Nathan is a friend of David's. And David should have went to him at the very beginning of this whole thing, but he never did. And Nathan comes in, and he's kind of like Luke in Return of the Jedi, you know? And he just kind of pulls his hood back and goes, My king, we have a problem in your kingdom. And David's like, well, what is it? What is it? And then Nathan says this, Well, there was a rich man and a poor man. The rich man had hundreds of lamb. The poor man only had one little lamb. It was more like a pet to the family. It was a little lamb. And they treated him like a person. The rich man was in it just for money. He had livestock and cattle and all kinds of lambs. Well, I just heard that one day a friend of the rich man's came to his house and he wanted to have a feast prepared for him. So he went and he took the poor man's lamb and he killed it and he made a feast for everyone. And David interrupts Nathan right in the middle of that and he says, are you serious? Somebody did that in my kingdom? And Nathan's like, yes, your honor. Yes, my king. And then David says, well, I guarantee whoever that man is will not live tonight. He must be killed. Killed. And then Nathan looks at him with these words and says, you are that man. See, at that point, David knows the secret's out. He can't hide. He can't cover it up anymore. It's out among everybody. And David falls to his knees and his heart breaks and he cries out to Nathan, Oh, Nathan, please ask God to forgive me. And Nathan says, You know what, David? God's already forgiven you, but He's very disappointed in you. And Nathan says, You know, the son that you and Bathsheba have, that child will die. David, sin has consequences. And you know, at the very beginning... When he looked upon Bathsheba, he could have gone to somebody else, but he didn't. When he had sex with her and committed adultery, he could have went to somebody else, but he didn't. When he brought Uriah in and eventually had him killed, he could have went to somebody else, and he didn't. And finally, Nathan comes on the scene, and it's too late. I mean, don't you think David wished he would have had a cup of coffee with Nathan like nine months earlier? That they could have sat down and, you know, David, are you thinking about having sex or committing adultery or murdering? You know what? I had that very thought last night. Well, you know what then? Don't do it! Don't do it! Don't fall into the trap. You see, folks, there's no formula to this horizontal bar. It's just a risk that you have to take to say, you know what, I need somebody in my life who knows everything because I'm going to screw up. And when I do, I need that person to help guide and direct my life. And you don't have to tell everyone what you think and you feel, but you should have at least one person that you can be honest and open with. 
Now, I know some of you are thinking right now, I don't need that. I'm not as messed up as David was. You know what, folks? Nobody here, no one in Muncie, no one in the world has ever had the title given from God, a man after my own heart. So you can fall. I mean, David was super Christian. And one day, three out of ten commandments he broke. And today, I just want to encourage you to take the next step. Be totally honest with God and yourself. And then be vulnerable with just one other person. I've had this in my life for the last ten years. I meet with a guy every other week. We share it all. Now, that didn't, that's not how it started out. Okay? I mean, I didn't just start out the very first time I met him. Hey, man, I want to tell you some of the darkest things in my life. You open to that? No, it took time. It's taken us four years to get to the point where we're at right now. But I'm asking you this week that you would think and pray about it. You know, is there just one person in my life that I really could share everything? Because Scripture tells us if you confess your sins to one another, healing comes. You get healed up. You know, we can confess them to God forever. But if it doesn't change our life, it doesn't do much. So we have to confess to another person. You can't do this bar very well, folks. The vertical bar of intimacy with God. If you don't do that well, you'll never do this well. You've got to have both. Let's stand for closing prayer. God, it is so hard for us to be honest. Honest with You. Honest with ourselves. Honest with other people. God, it's so easy for us to hide things. To cover them up. To put them in places, skeletons in the closet where they never come out, God, but they never get healed either. And so, God, I pray that through the power of Your Holy Spirit that You would help people today to be free from things that they try to hide and cover up. And, God, that they would find one other person that they could share those things with. Some other Christian friend that they could share things with so that their life might be healthier and healed. God, You're the only one who ultimately can do these things, but it's our part to be able to bring them to you and to connect with another person. So by your power, would you do that this week for your honor and for your glory? In Jesus' name, amen. Have a great week. Know that you're loved in this place. If you'd like prayer for anything, uh, come on up. Thanks.